0: Hello there, you're listening to the new Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. My name is Will Love and I'm the girls basketball coach in Sandpoint. The basic premise of this podcast is to talk about coaching high school basketball in Idaho. The intent is to grow my knowledge, and hopefully yours, of the game and help create community. If you're a basketball coach in Idaho, I would love to spotlight you. If you're interested in participating on a future episode of the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast, please contact me at Idaho Basketball coaching Podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. We are very lucky to have Coach Ryan Lundgren joining us for this podcast. Lundgren is an assistant coach at College of Southern Idaho. For that, he was a head coach at Valley View High School. His resume includes a nice blend of high school and college coaching experiences. Coach Lundgren, thanks for talking basketball with us today. How's it going? Doing good. Appreciate you having me on, Will. This is going to be fun. I wanted to start with some questions related to your college coaching experience. I know that you did some stuff at Boise State and then uh, got into the high school game and now you're back at at CSI. So one of the things that I I noticed in doing a little research was that uh, CSI head coach Jeff Reiner said he was very impressed how you navigated through the application and interview process and said you were a great example for young coaches wanting to get into the college game. So I wanted to ask what were some things that you did and putting together your application and resume that, that you think made you stand out?
1: I think the number one thing is I just kind of hung around and showed him how bad I wanted the job because um, CSI is obviously not just a, uh, a state college or a regional college uh, in the sense of um, you know, uh, the quality of the program, but it's a national brand. Um, and because of that, he had a lot of applicants. Um, and quite frankly, he probably had a lot of applicants that maybe on paper, coming from other colleges, uh, a lot of people would argue were better applicants than me. Um, and so, you know, I think for me, coming from a high school job, even though I did have prior Division One experience, which obviously helped me, um, but it was challenging for me to make that jump um, from the high school level to here just because it is a prestigious program. And so... Um, Number one, I just had to show them how bad I wanted it. So I think there's a fine line between being too pushy when you're going after a job, but also being very persistent and making sure that that person knows how bad you want it and that you're willing to do anything to prove to them that you're the best candidate. So um, I would try to do little things every other day, Um, sometimes every day where I would send him Maybe it was a Photoshop graphic I put together because that's a big thing on social media with basketball programs at the college level these days. Um, maybe it was a recruiting list for a, a, a state or a region and available players. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on my resume, which I think helped, but I don't think that's the ultimate reason I got it. I think there's a lot of factors. You know, I think that, um, that the biggest thing is just being persistent and showing that you're an asset. And if you can show that person that you're an asset and you're trustworthy and you're loyal and you're willing to go the extra mile, be a self-starter. I think he kind of saw all those things in me through my passion, um, just during that process. And that's what ultimately gave me a chance to get the job. So, um, there, you know, there wasn't one or two specific things, but it was just kind of a culmination of, um, being available, uh, continuing to show him that, that I really wanted the job. And then I got a little bit lucky and you know, ended up getting it. So um, I would say those are probably the, the biggest things during the process that I tried to focus on.
0: Obviously uh, you needed to have uh, some, some great basketball knowledge to, uh, to be hired at CSI. So uh, one of the things that's impressive about, uh, about your resume is, is all the stuff that you've done. I know that we've got uh, assistant coaches listening to this podcast. What are some things that you would recommend for them that will uh, strengthen their coaching credentials and make that resume a little more impressive?
1: Yeah, I'd encourage all young coaches to to go somewhere, or to work for someone, or to work in a job where it challenges them. Um, I look back at my time at Boise State when I was young, you know, 21, 22 years old. And, and they were difficult years at times because I was challenged by the guys I was working with and the guys I was working for. Um, but they made me grow the most, and I think that's really, really important: is to go somewhere where you can't, you can't just kind of hit cruise control and go, but you're you're being challenged, and that's what's ulti- ultimately going to make you a better coach and make you grow. I think the other thing is finding ways to immerse yourself in professional development opportunities, whether that's just. You know, grabbing a pizza on the weekend with a couple other coaches, uh, local college coaches, or even other high school coaches, um, or you know, going to coaches' clinics. Um, I know, like we run a coaches' clinic here at CSI. College of Idaho runs a really good one as well. So right here, kind of in your backyard in Southern Idaho, you have a couple of great options. Um, one thing I would try to do when I was a high school coach at Valley View every fall, um, <clears throat> I would take all of my staff or not all my staff, but usually my varsity assistants and maybe one sub varsity guy. And we would go travel around and go to college practices. Cause I always felt like, um, I got more out of watching an actual, you know, the kind of the raw footage in a college practice, rather than going to a Nike clinic in Vegas. And it just ends up being, you have bigger names. You have the Roy Williams and the Bob Huggins and those guys, but they've been doing that for so long that they're, they're just kind of, going through their PowerPoint or talking about their thing. They've always promoted whatever topic they are talking about. But I always felt like when I went to a college practice, um, I got so much out of just watching the drills and the way coaches interact. Um, and I think one of the things, too, for young coaches is it doesn't always have to be Division One. I mean, um, you know, when I took my staff on those trips, typically it was Division One. But, again, you have – For coaches in like the Treasure Valley, I mean, you've got Colby Blaine and Paul Rush at College of Idaho and NNU. And I've met a lot of guys in those businesses, and there's not many better than those two. So you can go to those two practices right there in the Boise area, and you can learn a ton. Um, And and then, you know, uh, a school like CSI here, Coach Reiner, has a wealth of experience. You can come in our gym anytime and learn a ton. Uh, Coach Rice, obviously, at Boise State. I mean, there's so many options at that level So if you can just get yourself out there and network and um, find ways to continue to uh, work on yourself and work on your craft of coaching, I think is going to really help you being a young coach.
0: All right. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, what you guys do there at CSI. And, you know, I don't know why I I think you tweeted this, but I thought it was a pretty interesting stat that uh, Mike Hood was the leading scorer at the junior college level in points after a timeout. Is that something that you guys emphasize at the uh, with the at the CSI program? Well, not
1: necessarily. I mean, we definitely out of timeouts. We want to coach Reiner does a great job of of drawing up a quick hitter or a play to to get our our best scores in scoring position. You know, so that's important. Um, but at the end of the day, Mike Hood is a hell of a player, and he was able to go make plays. You know, so. Um, A lot of what we ran for Mike or a lot of what we ran offensively was for Mike. And so um, he was a great end of clock scorer, great shooter, could get to the rim. And that kind of contributed to his ability to, to be the most efficient guy in the country out of timeouts. Um, You know, coach Reiner has like a saying or a philosophy that kind of hits on the point of not enough coaches understand who their best players are and just get them the ball. And I think, At the high school level, um, even less coaches are willing to do that. And maybe it's because it's high school basketball and their philosophy is, you know, these guys aren't going to be pros, so I want everybody to have a good experience and get everybody involved. Um, Or maybe it's because of fear of parent outlash. Um, If one kid's taking 25 shots a game and everyone else is taking five, you know, I was kind of always, maybe it was because of my college background a little bit, but I, I agreed with Coach Reiner in that sense, when I was a high school coach, like my best players took 80 to 90% of my shots. And that was where all of my set plays were going for my best guys. And that's just the reality of it. And so um, I don't think there's enough uh, coaches at, at many levels, not just high school, but college as well, that understand, like, these are my best guys. I'm going to get shots for them every time down if I can, or at least try to put them in a position to where if they don't get the shot, um, they can play out of it and get their teammates involved. So. I think that's what we tried to do with Mike. And I think that obviously his offensive ability was, was the number one reason he was able to, to be so efficient out of those timeout situations.
0: I know that you're a student of the game and as you, you know, your suggestion that always be learning, always, uh, always um, be developing. So what are some things that you've learned in this, this last year at CSI?
1: Well, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. I mean, probably the biggest part of what I've learned is, is obviously the recruiting side of things. You know, when I was at Boise state, um, I was involved in recruiting, but it was limited. You know, we, NCA has a lot of rules as to what they can allow. So um, I was a director of player development. So it was kind of a support staff role. I did a lot of video and academics and travel and working with players one-on-one and doing some of that. But as far as like going out on the road recruiting, I couldn't do that Um, per NCA rules. I couldn't. So, Really, my recruiting was watching videos online, helping assistant coaches evaluate guys, or when a family and a recruit came onto campus, then I was able to kind of get to know the family, you know, go with the staff to dinner, whatever, do those type of on campus recruiting things. So um, that's been my biggest learning curve, um, is just Uh, how much you have to be recruiting. I mean, it it really is an everyday thing. If you want to do good at it and you want to be successful with it, um, it's not just reaching out to people when you need something. It's reaching out to people, not every day, but maybe every week or every other week and just following up with them. So when you do need something or when you do try to want to uh, recruit one of their players, um, you're not the guy that's just hitting them up every six to eight months when when they have a player you want you just build those relationships and so I think you know the good thing for me is relationship building's always kind of come natural and I've always felt like it's a really important part of coaching at any level Um, and so I think that's kind of helped me transition into that recruiting part of things Um, you know the other thing that I've probably learned is just the importance of Spending a lot of time with your players. I think a lot of coaches get really, really caught up in the next guy they're going to recruit. You know, they sign a kid, they get him here, they coach him obviously every day, but then they're working the phones for next year and who they're going to sign next year and not focusing as much on that kid that they invested in that's on campus now and so um even though it can be difficult at times when you have 16 guys on your roster and you're doing scouting reports and you're doing workouts and class checks and meetings and practice and film the number one most important thing that you have to budget time in is to just spend time with those guys whether it's taking them to lunch doing a one-on-one workout on the floor watching film in my office you know bringing them over to my house for dinner whatever it is um, those guys, they're kind of the lifeblood of your program and you have to do a really good job of just developing relationships with them every single day. And I think that, um, I, you know, if I self-reflect on that, I, I do think I did a good job with that this year, but that's something that I want to become a lead at. And I want to be even better at um, investing in the guys that are here with us right now.
0: Uh, when I reached out to you, uh, you, you got back to me and said, you're passionate about Idaho high school basketball. How come?
1: Well, uh, you know, I'm an Idaho guy, number one. I mean, that's probably the biggest reason. I think there's such a, um, there's such a purity about the high school game that you don't really get at any other level. Um, I think the biggest thing is you have the community that kind of rallies around your program. You know, I saw, I I was able to experience that at Valley View and it was so special to me being the coach. Um, But it wasn't even just about basketball. Like it was just about seeing people at the grocery store and Um, seeing them at dinner on Saturday night or whatever it is and and everybody kind of rallying around your program. And so um, that's one of the biggest reasons that, you know, I'm passionate about high school basketball in Idaho. And obviously, like I said earlier, being from Idaho, I just have such a familiarity with the coaches and the kids and the administrators and the schools um, that I feel maybe a little bit more invested to it. You know, obviously playing high school basketball in Idaho at Boise High, and then coaching it at Bishop Kelly at Boise High at Valley View, so I kind of experienced a lot of different avenues of it. And then obviously now um, being at a a college uh, in the state of Idaho, um, we you know we've recruited Idaho kids, so I've kind of seen the other side of it as well. And so um, those are just some of the reasons I've been passionate about it, and I really. I really want to see the the game in Idaho, the high school game, move in a good direction and continue to grow. And I think you and I talked before we started rolling the podcast about you know the shot clock thing. And I think that I, I feel very strongly that that's something that needs to happen. And uh, I think it's unfortunate that some of the people that make decisions at the state level are unwilling to to do what's necessary to make that move, because I think. Um, not I don't think I know that it'll, it'll make the game so much better and it'll prepare those kids that do go on to college um, to be uh, that much more prepared and and not only the kids that go on to college but it, it'll just create a better brand of basketball your last two and a half minutes of a high school game instead of it being you know foul 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 and 20 free throws um, the shot clock will come into play and uh, people will be actually running possessions to, to, to score, um, which you don't often see now if you have a lead teams, just kind of sit on the ball and, and get fouled. And so, um, you know, that's, those are reasons why I'm passionate about it. And I just want to continue to see the high school game in Idaho grow and um, in the right direction.
0: Yeah. You know, we're fortunate up here in the North because we neighbor Washington. And so, you know, each year, uh probably at least on our schedule three or four times we get to play in Washington with a shot clock and it the basketball is so much better. Oh yeah. And then, you know, uh having done watched some some other uh not high school basketball, but the international basketball, you know, I was watching a game between Australia and New Zealand and uh, you know, New Zealand was down, I think, twenty, twenty-five, uh, early uh in the third quarter, but all of a sudden they had an opportunity to come back and they cut the lead down to nine. So whereas that game would have been over at halftime, uh, you know, Australia had to score and they weren't and New Zealand did uh, and New Zealand had the opportunity to score. So, you know, I, I agree uh, with you.
1: It's interesting because when, when I was at Ballyview every year, we'd take our team to California and play four games. And uh, I don't remember, I think it was my second year, the year we made the state championship. We had a really good team. And we were playing in the third place game. We were in a tournament in Santa Barbara. And we were playing a team from kind of suburban L.A. And uh, they were a really good team. And they were shooting the ball really well. It was our fourth game in four days. So our guys were gassed. We got down by 38 points. I think we were down 30 at halftime or something. We ended up coming back and cutting that game to six points. And we lost. But I just thought about it and I'm like, that never would have happened in Idaho. I look back to situations where I had an eight or a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter and all we did was run clock because we're just trying to get the win, you know? And so by having that shot clock and continuing the game up and down at that pace, you know, um, our team finally got in a groove, started hitting shots. Um, They couldn't just milk the clock. So we started getting stops, got back into the game and it was just such a better, I remember telling my staff afterwards, like, that is why we need a shot clock in high school basketball in Idaho because it's just such a better brand of basketball. But I, hopefully I, that change is made in the, in the near future. Yeah. We,
0: we can only, we can only hope. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, talk a little bit about your run at, at, at Valley Valleyview is it was, it was successful. I mean, you had a 62 and 44 record uh, finished as a 4A uh, state runners up in 2017. What do you think were some separators that uh, allowed Valley View to have that success during your time?
1: Number one is, talented players. I mean, coaches can say whatever they want, but at the end of the day, um, it's not about the X's and the O's, it's the Johnny and the Joe's, right? I mean, you you have to have talent to win. And I was really fortunate to have, um, you know, state player of the year and Amaro Lotto started for me for four years. Um, uh, Nick Fitz was a kid who was at Melba high school who ended up transferring over to us for his senior year. And, helped lead us to that state championship and we already had a lot of talent before he came um when I took that job my junior class we were 5a that first year and we were 500 in the 5a but we competed with you know the Rockies and the Boras and we didn't beat them but we competed with them um so then when all those juniors became seniors and then you add you know a Nick Fitz came in um we just had the depth and the senior leadership and those guys were so hungry to be successful they made that kind of cinderella run i mean it was an unbelievable year and i think that year really set the stage for the next two years because you know one thing i tried to always do was bring up as many underclassmen as i could to the state tournament um they wouldn't play necessarily unless we were way up or way down at the end of the game but i wanted them to go to the shoot around go to the scouting report meetings go to the team meals um, I wanted them to be in the locker room when we jumped around and had a water fight and celebrated after a win. Like that stuff was so important because I knew that those guys were the next man up, you know. And I've, when I left Valley View um, this last summer, I went through and kind of reminisced on my four years there, looked at all these pictures and videos that I had saved on my computer and in my email. And um, there was a video of when we beat Idaho Falls in the semis in 2017 to go to the state championship. And it was like, man, Valley View hasn't been at this moment. And it had been like 12 years or something. And so we were just so excited. We'd worked so hard. And we're everyone coaches, players jumping around in the locker room, spraying each other with water. And I have four or five guys that were in street clothes. Those were my JV guys that were like sophomores and I had moved up. And every one of those guys ended up starting for me on my team last year that, um, you know, tied for first place in the league. We lost a heartbreaker in overtime in the district championship, and then we got back to the state semis. So, I mean, that was a really good team, too, that we had last year. And all those guys had experienced that 2017 year, and I think that really helped them kind of have that expectation in their mind that, you know, this is what the expectation is at Valley View, and we're going to work hard to do it. So, um, you know, it just the number one thing is having good players, having a great staff. I had an unbelievable coaching staff. A lot of my assistants went on to get head high school jobs in the valley and had a lot of success with it. Um, and then, you know, the community. I mean, I I was a Boise High guy. When I took the Valley View job, I say this to people like. Honestly, it was the only high school job available when I took it. And I knew I wanted to uh, go back to high school and be a head coach. Like that was something I wanted to do. And so had had any of those Meridian or Boise jobs been open, I probably would have gone after them over Valley View. But I'm so thankful that the Valley View job was the only one open because it was the best thing that could have happened in my career. I mean, it's such a special place. And not a lot of people know that until you're actually in that community with that administration those people just embrace you. And um, it's just a really, really unique, special community. So I think the success we had was, you know, obviously players, good coaches, and and, and a community that really supported our program. So um, I really look back on those years and cherish them. I was lucky to be there as long as I was.
0: One of the things that I was impressed with on, on from the other side of the state was your ability to highlight and market your program you know uh one of the things schools deal with is less and less interest from the student body but um through your hype videos and free swag and other things that you did you you could see from the outside that you you built some excitement around the program so why was that important for you as a as a as a high school coach
1: yeah well i think i think part of it was maybe maybe my background being that boise state before and and trying to make it more than just high school program like I wanted it to have a college feel I wanted it to have a community feel that everybody could get excited about and I think when I came to Valley View Valley View didn't really have a culture in a lot of ways I mean it was very um, kids kind of showed up and they weren't really supportive of athletics in a lot of ways and um, so that was one of my huge goals I'm like yeah I want to win games and I want to win championships but I want the kids in this school to be excited about not just Valley view basketball, but Valley view football and volleyball and everything. And let's support each other. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, we had a video guy in our school who ran the video program, Derek self does a great job. And I ended up kind of proposing to him, uh, to almost pay him a bit of a stipend, uh, fundraise some money to pay him to make these highlight videos. Cause kids love to, you know, watch that type of stuff. And so we put that out on social media. Um, you know, the game day thing, I think, was huge. I remember one of our first coaches meetings when I took the job with my staff, I said, <clears throat> you know, how do we how do we get kids to games? Because I look back to, you know, I graduated high school in 07, and it was starting to change a little bit then. But you go back a few years, maybe 2002, 2003, not every kid had a cell phone, right? So it was like everybody went to the football game on Friday nights or the basketball game on Saturday nights. And even if it wasn't to watch the game, it was to visit with their friends and figure out what everyone was doing for the weekend. So that was the way that everyone communicated. Well, now kids all have Snapchat and Instagram, so they don't have to go to the game to find out what their friends are doing. Um, So that's where I tried to say, okay, we're going to use Snapchat. We're going to use Twitter. We're going to use Instagram and we're going to get kids excited that way. So that might be a Snapchat on our Valley View Hoops account where I would say, okay, uh, Gabe, one of our players, you're going to take – you're going to sign into the account, the Snapchat account, and you're going to document your whole day. And so he'd go around classes. He'd film kids on Snapchat. He'd get kids excited. Um, We'd give out free T-shirts from trivia questions and stuff, but you had to be at the game to collect them, and so then – People are tweeting out pictures of themselves at games and it gets other kids excited. And so we just really tried to, instead of maybe some older, old school coaches would not want to embrace the social media side of things, we just tried to embrace it fully and just make it who we were as a program so the kids could really feel connected to our players and then come out and support them and feel like the basketball game on a Friday night was more of an event than just a basketball game. So those are just some of the things we focused
0: on. Well, I think it's a good point that we have to market our programs. I I believe it, it's something that we, there, there's competition out there. Whereas, you know, um, when you were in high school and I was a little bit, uh, I was the decade before there wasn't that, that same competition out there as far as, uh, as far as keeping kids entertained and so you know i think we have to understand that as coaches and you know i think uh if you're kind of scared of technology well maybe um one of your managers uh not just being uh in charge of stats and stuff like that they're in charge of your social media account
1: exactly exactly so we we really felt that was important
0: you also did some cool things when it came to scheduling. You talked about the out of state tournaments uh, in California. I remember actually seeing you guys, uh, a photo of you guys uh, watching uh, the Golden State Warriors, if I remember correctly. Um, and then you did some other activities that cost money. One of the things um, that your program excelled at was fund- fundraising. So, what were some specific things that you did to uh, raise money?
1: you know number one my philosophy on fundraising we did do a great job of fundraising um, and it took a village to do it honestly you know Um, but my number one thing was I always want to provide a service so it was interesting for me coming into a high school and seeing a lot of the coaches not just in our league but even in our own building that what they would do for fundraisers were free throw hoop shoot. So essentially you're just asking people to cut you a check. Um, Maybe they'd sell popcorn or chocolate bars or something like that. And I always wanted to make it more about what can we do to help the community? So people feel like, yes, I'm cutting a $50 check, but it's not just a donation. I'm getting something for it, you know? Um, And so we did things like we did a father-daughter dance. It was extremely successful and it grew from I think 200 and some kids my first year to over 650 my last year. And it was a huge community event. And so people would pay 40 or 50 bucks to have dinner served and come dance with their daughter for the night and take a picture. Um, but I don't think they ever felt like this is just a donation to Valley View Basketball. Like This is a special night with my daughter. And, and then in turn, that got them excited about the basketball program because all my players were there in suits and ties serving food. And so now they wanted to come out and support them. And so, and then we did a, another big one we did was a youth league. And so um, all the feeder schools in our program, we did a league that our players refereed on the weekends. And then what we ended up doing, it grew so much that we ended up having um, teams from outside the district like Middleton and Homedale and Caldwell and um, Greenleaf and some of those schools joined our league and we were up over 600 700 kids my last year and my assistant Mario Betancourt who's now the head coach he deserves the credit for that league I mean I was there kind of shaking hands talking to people making sure it ran smoothly but he was the guy behind the scenes doing all that work and and that's why it's still really successful because he's taken over the program and he's still doing it so that was a huge fundraiser for us but it was also really important because our Kid, our feeder kids got to meet our varsity guys got to come in and play in our gym got to work on skill development and compete on the varsity court you know so all of those things were huge and then just um, other little fundraisers we would do that I would tell our varsity guys listen we're going to California this trip's going to cost fifteen thousand dollars because we're going to go to a Warriors game and we're going to fly down there and we're going to spend a day in you know LA on the beach. And we tried to do more than just like um, pinch pennies as much as we could. We tried to like experience all the cool stuff that we could when we went to these places because a lot of our kids had never been there. And so we thought it was really important to make the most of it. But with that, I kind of put the onus on the kids, like you're going to have to raise some serious money if you want to do this. And so they always bought into it and did a good job with that. So my biggest philosophy was just don't always ask for handouts because you're not the only program asking. Football is, baseball is, volleyball is, soccer is, drama is. Try to provide a service that you actually make money on. So that's what I always try to do when I fund.
0: That's a that's a great point. Provide provide a service so people uh, are more willing to uh, to give you that money. Um, so, you know, one of the things I read about was you took from Boise State experience a preseason boot camp, and you did that with your team. So, w- w- how did that and other culture building activities build that team chemistry that you felt were, was important on the on the court?
1: Yeah, um, I you know my last year there at Coach Rice, I don't know if they do it anymore, but they did it for a few years as a there's a uh, company called the Program, and you hire. It costs a lot of money, but they fly out uh, ex-Navy SEALs, military guys, and they put your team through a boot camp. And it's it was really powerful um, watching what it did to our guys at Boise State. And so it was something that I was like, this would be really cool if we could do it at the high school level. My first year at Valley View, one of my assistants was an ex-military guy, so he had connections in Mountain Home. He was able to get a hold of a few guys. A general and, and then a couple, or a sergeant and a couple guys that had just finished boot camp and were like young and eager and ready to yell at some kids and make them work. And uh, so they essentially came down, and I think we paid them a little bit of money for their gas and like took them out to dinner. And they crashed in my spare bedroom at my house, but uh, just pretty much did a 48 hour boot camp. And the cool thing about it is, you know, you sit down with these guys before and you say, hey, you know, here's the three guys that I want you to pick on and not pick on in a bad way, but I want you to make them be leaders. So call them up, make them reiterate the directions to the team. And if the team doesn't follow the directions, you don't yell at the team, you yell at the leader. And so I tried to do that with guys who either upperclassmen who I knew were going to be really important for us to be leaders, for us to have success, or maybe it was the younger guys. Like I talked about Amaro Lotto started for me for four years. I remember his freshman year, I had him lead a, a pool exercise that was and, and he was terrified to get in the water and carry a teammate and swim but he had to lead the team through this activity as a 14 year old freshman and I thought that was you know really good for his growth and his maturity and so um, I guess it was kind of unique in the sense that we were able to find an angle to get those guys out here for cheap because I don't think that maybe everyone would have the access to do that but because my assistant was um, a military guy. He had that connection. And then once they did it in year one, they were like eager to do it every year. They were texting me in July like, hey, are we doing boot camp? And um, we just made it part of what we did as a program. And that was, we would do tryouts. And the next day after tryouts, we would do 48 hours of boot camp. So we did it before we ever even touched a basketball. Because it takes about three, four days for those kids to recover. They're so sore <laughs> after two days of that boot camp. It's really, really difficult. So.
0: Yeah um you know i think uh, as you pointed out this m- might not be something that everybody can do but i think uh, the point being is that you had something that became part of your program something that kids look forward to that challenged them you know and i think uh, this at least in my experience one of the tougher things is to get leaders talking to uh, their peers. And I think this sounded like a great opportunity to kind of break down those barriers that, uh, that kids have sometimes when it comes to communication.
1: Yeah, it was, it really was. Uh,
0: So I want to talk a little uh, X's and O's here uh, before, before we go. But um, so you talked about your experience at Boise state as a director of player development. What were some of the concepts you learned there that shaped how you approach the game offensively?
1: You know, when I was there, um, I, I'm going to kind of be throwing out a number here, but we were top ten in the country in offensive efficiency, I believe, two of the four years I was there. And uh, you know, Coach Rice is is an unbelievable coach. Um, coach Linder was our associate head coach; he was kind of our offensive coordinator. And and then obviously we had other great assistants, Coach Reilly, who's at UC Santa Barbara, and. Coach Wojcik and Coach Henderson, guys that moved on to to better opportunities. Um, But I guess in saying all that, like, we had such a good staff from a player development standpoint, but also from an offensive standpoint that just sitting in those coaches' meetings or in those film sessions with our team and, again, being a young guy and just learning so much, being a sponge during those four years and just taking in all that I could – I just think that we had such a phenomenal staff and really you look at the guys that I just named, they all moved on to better jobs. I mean, Jeff Linder, who I said was our offensive coordinator, he's the head coach at Wyoming now. And, uh, he was as good as they come when it comes to offensive stuff. And so I think I just learned a lot about, you know, spacing concepts and screening concepts and, and different ways to run offense and, um, Uh, You know, and I would not have learned all of that had I not kind of been in the trenches learning on a daily basis with all of those coaches at Boise State, from Coach Rice all the way down. Um, We just had a really good synergy on our staff and a really unique way of doing things offensively. So I feel really fortunate that uh, I worked for the staff that I did. And I think it kind of ties back to your question you asked earlier with younger coaches. Like, if you're looking to make the move to college or you're looking to grow, try to go research and work for somebody that you think is either a, an up and comer that's going to get a bigger job and maybe you can go with them or um, someone that's just going to challenge you and you're going to learn from. Cause if you just go in blind, you don't know who you're working for, but if you do some research and you find someone, you know, like a Leon Rice or a Jeff Linder, or a uh, Danny Henderson or a John really, or whatever um, you're going to learn so much every day that, no matter where you go next, you're going to be a better coach because of it. And that's what I felt like I got out of that experience there.
0: What would you do at Valley View to kind of filter through all that stuff to figure out, okay, this is what we're going to to run this season. This yep. is what we're going to run this next season.
1: It's a good question. You know, coming in, I don't know the exact age that I was when I took the Valley View job. I, I want to say like 24 or 25. Um, so I was just young and arrogant enough to think that <laughs> – It didn't matter what I had on the court. Like, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat anybody. I know more than these guys, whatever. Um, But the reality was a lot of the stuff that we did at Boise State, I wasn't able to do at the high school level because you just don't have the level of talent. But I think that through practice and skill development and some of that stuff, you find kind of a happy medium. So you watch a lot of our stuff throughout the years at Valley View, a lot of the stuff we ran offensively, and it's pretty unique, like you don't, you wouldn't see a lot of it at the high school level, um, but I dummied it way down because you just can't <clears throat> do all of the complex actions or different things that you're able to do at the highest level of Division I basketball, um, you're not able to do those at the high school level, so I took bits and pieces, and I took bits and pieces from my time at, at uh, Bishop Kelly with Larry Crump, and my time at uh, Boise High with Jeff Ulrichson, and what they were able to do at the high school level that I liked and I thought would really work well um, when I ran my own high school program. So, you know, you just take some of that stuff and that's really coaching. You hop around different jobs and you take bits and pieces of what you like and you kind of build your own philosophy.
0: How big was your playbook? I mean, how much, how much stuff did you, did you run? Cause uh, you know, I, I just find that, you know, this is my going into my third year. I I'm just cutting back and cutting back. Yeah. And saying, here's what we do, you try to stop it.
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, we um, we had like a basic motion offense that was kind of a free-flowing offense. We probably had about 25 to 30 sets. Now, when I say 25 to 30 sets, um, we would have like one formation and we would have four counters out of it. So, you know, we might have ear and then we'd have ear check, which is the counter, and then we'd have ear two and ear one. And so they were all different actions to kind of disguise um, what we were doing for the teams that might've scouted us. And so um, when I say we had 25 or 30 sets, we typically would maybe have six to eight, maybe 10 at the most formations. And then we'd have counters out of those. So, but if you're going to have that many, again, that goes back to my philosophy of like, I don't want to be a guy that just calls a set every time. Like I want to get stops and let my, my guys go let them play but then if they don't get something easy in transition or early in the clock now we're going to run a set to get my best player a shot and that that was always my philosophy is basketball is not an equal opportunity sport Uh, the best players that put in the most work are going to get the most shots and so that was why I probably had more sets than maybe a lot of coaches that I coached against did Uh, but again you have to spend a lot of time like we'd spend anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes every day running through sets. And that's just, if you wanna be good at it, you have to spend some time doing it.
0: Definitely. Um, so I got uh, just a couple more questions with you. I, I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Um, one of the things that you talked about uh, just a minute ago was the idea of spacing. And uh, you know, one of the things I was watching uh, um, the, the Last Dance, uh, the Jordan documentary, and one of the things I nudged my wife was like, look at that spacing, you know, especially like in the 80s, like how close they were together and stuff like that, you know. Um, but that's such a huge part of many teams' attacks. So what were some effective ways to get your players to understand spacing and then implement that during the game?
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, I my, one of my goals with um, my practice plans and just kind of my approach to practice is I don't want to talk a lot. Like I don't – I hate – I've worked with the coaches. I've been coached by the coaches They get up on their soapbox and they talk and they talk and they talk and then it kills the the flow of your practice and players check out. And so I really would always try to say, you know, if I can 15 to 30 seconds, if I have to say something quick, go. And one of the only things I would stop practice for consistently was spacing. Like we would say, you know, our two guards that run the floor that they got to get to the dead corner. And so we would, early on, we put an X with tape down almost all the way to the baseline out of bounds line. Um, And it's amazing when you just watch kids that haven't been taught spacing concepts, almost always they stop short of the baseline, like way short of the baseline. And then what that, you know, does is when the ball handler is coming down the floor, that takes away his seam to attack because now guy that ran the wing his defenders in the gap and so little things like that um, using tape early on to kind of teach where guys need to go Um, we didn't really have like a uh, we we called it more of like a scattered break or random break where you just run the floor it's not like two goes to the right three goes to the left like we didn't that I never thought that that was effective I would just rather have my guys get down the floor and so that helped us, I think. And then film was huge. Like, I don't know. I know a lot of coaches show film on games of their own team. We would actually film our first three weeks of practice, and we'd show film almost every day. Um, and then once the season started, you just don't have time for that because you're doing scouting reports or you're showing film with your opponent. Um, but we would, after every game, I'd show good clips and I'd show bad clips. And I'd show we got to get better in these areas. You guys did a great job in this area. And then I would try to have kids in my office at least every week, um, a few kids to meet with individually and show them individual film of what they as an individual need to do better. And so I think by just constantly reinforcing it in practice, um, and then also showing film on a consistent basis, because you can say it all you want, but until the kids actually see it, um, it's hard for them sometimes to wrap their heads around. So I think those were ways that we were able to, space the floor well and have our guys understand the importance of it
0: all right um so one more spacing question was there anything that you would do special to teach on uh, uh the weak side as far as uh showing our uh having players know when to cut and when to when to space
1: yeah so we would we would do like different reads at the end of most practices and I thought this was like a good way to end practice. A lot of times we'd do about 15 minutes of it and we'd turn the music up as loud as we could. The gym would just be blaring. It was, it was essentially like four on oh but all the coaches would be passing so maybe one guy's driving it and the guard behind him is filling behind and he's passing it to him and then guy who passed it's going to the corner and the coach is hitting him like we would just do stuff that kind of mimicked actions in our offense but to your point we would do a lot of different reads out of that so maybe on the back side we're driving the right wing and the backside corner defender is turning his head watching the guy driving we drill that guy in the corner to cut to the rim cut you know see the back of their head you cut and then so we drill those actions in like four on O stuff um And then hopefully they kind of translate it into the game. But again, you go back to film. Those are things that I don't think you can teach in a better way than showing film. Like, look at this. Your guy is looking at the ball. You're standing in the corner. You got a back cut. Or uh, maybe your guy's helping in too much. You got to be down ready to shoot or whatever it looks like. Um, A lot of that is just teaching them through film and, uh, and then understanding spacing concepts. Our guys knew like, If the ball was driven from this position and you're on the opposite corner, as he drives it on the right side, you're going to lift above the defense. So it makes that pass easier. If you're on the ball side corner, you stay as deep as you can and you're down ready to shoot in case your guy bluffs in the gap and then he kicks it out and you're open. So those things we drilled every day, but we also showed on film so our players understood where they could be better in those situations.
0: All right. uh, Last question for you. Um, and I have to do this because I would uh, talk offense all day, but I suppose we should talk a little bit about defense. So uh, if a high school coach asked you right now, what are two or three things that they could do, uh, work on in practice to improve their team defense, what would you suggest?
1: It's a good question. Um, I I think from a broad sense of that question, I would say you have to have a philosophy. You have to have like a backbone to your defense. there's some coaches that are scouting report defenders in the sense that whoever they're playing, they're going to change how they do things. I talked about Danny Henderson at Boise state. He was a high school coach in Texas for 25 years. He won a couple state championships at the highest level in Dallas. I mean, he was a legend in high school coaching in Texas, and he was a huge defensive guru. And he taught me early on, like you have to have a, a base system. Like he blitzed the post and doubled the post every time it went in, no matter who the post was. And so I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying like, have some, like at Valley view, we switched one through five all the time. Like our five man would switch onto a point guard. Part of that was we were always undersized. So it was easier for us, but that was like our identity. Um, So you have to have an identity. You have to have a backbone to what you do. And then you can adjust little things based on who you're playing You know, maybe you're you're playing a Bishop Kelly, and they have Max Rice, and you want to double the ball screen to get it out of his hand. Like, we would do those things, but we had the the backbone of what we did every day. I guess from like a tactical standpoint, if there's a couple of things, I think defensively you need to really teach as a high school coach. I think help side is huge um, because I just don't think that there's enough really really good high school players in Idaho. Um, they can hurt you shooting semi-contested shots. So we always tried to really load up the paint and make guys kick it out and shoot mid-range jump shots, you know? And so run them off the three-point line, make them shoot twos instead of open threes. So those were important to us. And then we always charted um, contested shots. Like I think that that's one of the things. um, There was a guy when I was at Boise State who came in, Uh, He was a scout for the Golden State Warriors. And they were looking at one of our players, Derek Marks, who played for us. And I just sat down with him for a few hours and talked to him. And one of the things he talked about was um, how obsessed they were with shot contests. And they had a coach on the bench during games that actually charted how guys were contesting, like the angle at which they contested. So they really wanted to get the hand above the ball. And so that was a thing that we were huge on. Like on the catch, your hand is above the ball. Because we wanted to, we felt like we're going to make teams bounce it, not shoot threes, not shoot layups. We're going to give them, you know, mid-range, off-balance jump shots. Like those are the ones we wanted to give up. And so we felt like if we could contest shots, not only would they miss more of them, but it would encourage them to dribble it more and bounce it and shoot mid-range jumpers instead. So um, those would be just a couple things, quick off the top of my head. I felt like um, at the high school level, we really tried to reiterate daily.
0: Coach, I really, really appreciate the time. It's been great to hear, you know, um, you, about your college experience and then also about your high school experience. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for reaching out to me. I think it's, uh, I think again, you talk about my passion for Idaho high school basketball. Like I think this, what you're doing on your Twitter page and with your podcast is, is phenomenal for uh, kids in our state, coaches in our state and just high school basketball in our state. And I think uh, we need more guys like you that are out there promoting it and helping it grow. So I appreciate what you're doing.
0: All right. Uh, well, maybe in a year or two, we'll have you back on to, to, yeah. to see how things are going.
1: Absolutely. Sounds good, Will. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. If you're a basketball coach in Idaho, I'd love to talk to you. If you're interested in participating on a future episode of the podcast, please contact me at Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you.